Upper acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past and present. And a special acknowledgement to today of the cultural expertise from my guest today, Associate Professor Carmen Pata, who we will meet shortly. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Tash Miles. This episode is a conversation I was privileged to have with Associate Professor Carmen Pata. She's a proud descendant of the Durrambul and Juru clans of the Biragaba Nation of Queensland with South Sea Islander heritage, the Tanna Island of Vanuatu. She's an opera board member, co-founder and director at the Learning Centre for Systemic Change and Research. She was the inaugural co-chair of the Indigenous Working Group of the World Federation of Public Health Association and a member of the Lowitcher Institute member community and fellow of the Katsunam. Welcome, Carmen. We'd better get started on the conversation after that long intro. Thank you for being here. Guta Mali Nakanari, Carmen. Hello, my name is Carmen Yelen Galen. Good morning. I'm a proud Murray woman of the Durumbal and Drury clans of the Biragaba Nation, uh, which is a big, big um, nation in Queensland. And um, I also have South Sea heritage um, connected to Tana Island of the Republic of Vanuatu. I'm an associate professor at the Macquarie um, University, but also co-founder uh, and director of the Learning Centre for Systemic Change and Research. And um, we use uh, Indigenous um, philosophy and methodologies uh, with um, Western science to look at working with organisations and individuals around um, complex issues. And in that piece of work that we do, we actually help um, uh, people and organisations to deal with um, issues such as uh, systemic and structural racism um, that make workplaces usually culturally unsafe and their services discriminatory, but also um, we help uh, those um, lateral violence that's, that's quite prevalent amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff that might work in uh, government departments or agencies. Uh, yeah, and we do, we use, um, we essentially use um, what, what I call talking circles, yarning and storytelling and visual stories to make known the unknown. Um, and it's essentially about making the invisible visible. That's what's required, particularly when you're starting to address issues like systemic and structural racism um, in terms of working with organisations and adapting and centering Indigenous knowledges and cultures of ways of being in the way that you change systems. And, uh, yeah, that's the type of work we'll be doing in the future under the centre. Fantastic. So um, that's, I guess, the present and the future. I'm wondering whether we could rewind back to the past um, and you could tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career because you um, were a nurse and a midwife. That's could correct. you tell us um, what that was like and also what the workforce was like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples working mm-hmm. in the health workforce? Yeah, so I um, grew up in Central West New South Wales and... Um, my dream was always to be a nurse. Um, and so I had the opportunity to commence my nursing career at Orange Base Hospital. I was uh, the last group at Orange Base Hospital before they went into colleges. 
and universities and um, uh, successfully uh, attained my registration there in 80, could have been 87, I think I started in 84. So um, 86 was my registration because 87, I went off to Westmead Hospital and worked in operating theatres. But um, yeah, interestingly, um, one of the things that um, I noticed when doing my uh, nursing at that time in the, the 80s was that there was nothing about Aboriginal health, no, nothing about uh, talking about communities' needs or their health needs. At the time, you know, the cold agenda was quite significant about working cross-culturally. And I was sitting in the classroom once thinking, now, why aren't they talking about Aboriginal health? Or, and um, so that was a telling moment to, to notice that. Um, and I think the other thing too that I noticed was that there weren't many um, black faces in the hospital at that time. And I subsequently went off and did my midwifery at Nepean Hospital, again, the second last group to go through midwifery course before it went into colleges and then transitioned, transitioned into universities. And again, I was still sitting with that, why isn't there anything about Aboriginal health in, in the context of the nursing that I was learning? And um, yeah, it was like, and that was in the 90s. Did you have a sense that you might be a part of that leadership and that conversation like further down the track? Well, interestingly, I was. I began, So those days when we were doing um, well women's clinics, we just did a statement of attainment through Family Planning New South Wales, and that was sufficient enough for us to go out in community and uh, provide clinics to, to well women and under the supervision of a general practitioner. Even the whole paradigm of, of midwifery was changing from a medicalised model to that of, you know, alternative birthing approaches to women's birthing experiences. And um, so I could remember, you know, <laughs> All, all this change happening as a nurse. But I think one of my critical points in terms of realising um, what was going on was I had made a deliberate decision to go and work in uh, policy areas because I had realised that the policies around Aboriginal health, particularly in New South Wales, were not appropriate for the needs of the community there. And there was certainly quite different um, ways of how policy was approaching health. And so I felt that in order to make changes, I needed to get into the policy arm of government to influence policy. And so really my Aboriginal uh, health career started, I think, in the early 90s. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate enough to be supported by, um, at the time, a senior advisor for Aboriginal health in New South Wales, known as Liz Williams. And, um, and uh, similarly, uh, Leslie Asso at the time, who really supported me in transitioning from being that of a clinical nurse to that of being a policymaker. And so hence started my uh, policymaking career as a junior person within the health department at, the, at that time in Haymarket. Um, and so that was, so the catalyst really was the fact that I had noticed that policies were um, not appropriate for the needs of Aboriginal people within communities and what I'd had been seeing. So a lot of my lived experience really influenced that experience tra 
to transition into policy. And it was quite interesting because I, I was adamant that I was going to remain as a nurse because I was going to travel the world. <laughs> that didn't even happen. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was my experience in terms of that transition. So when you spoke about creating a culturally safe experience for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients in the policy area, was that, did you also think about having a culturally safe workplace for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives and other health practitioners? I mean, so cultural safety around that time probably wasn't even a word that we, that was used, but certainly I, I noticed that health service delivery was not not good. Mm. I mean, and then if you look back in the terms of the history of um, uh, the Aboriginal community control health sector, you know, they they commenced their movement in the 70s with Redfern AMS being the first to commence, um, you know, a, a health care in their community because they recognised that mainstream services weren't culturally appropriate and sufficient enough to respond to the needs of community and um, and in lots of ways it, it had a lot to do with um, the racism too that, that played out even in, in um, the 70s and continued to play out in, in the 80s and, um, and uh, you know, I can recall entering uh, the policy arena and one of the biggest policies was cultural awareness, you know, around that time. Um, and it was the discourse that was used around understanding the culture and history of Aboriginal people and um, the need to to understand that culture and history in order to provide a better service. I was also on the, uh, when I entered Aboriginal Health, it would have been uh, just after the release of the 1989 National Aboriginal Health Strategy. Right. So that was a big, significant landmark strategy that was led by community. And um, that strategy in itself is still relevant today. Yeah as it was back then, and it's about 30-odd years old. Now might be 33 years old. And uh, even in that strategy, it spoke about racism and the need for health professionals to understand our culture and history because particularly our culture um, and understanding things like kinship relationship because it impacts on the way that clinical care is actually provided to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. What are some examples, I mean, obviously we know that racism still exists right now in the healthcare system and there's still change to be made, but are there some from a policy perspective, some changes that you've seen be made that maybe you've been a part of that have really positively affected Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as patients and as practitioners? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest probably um, change is is in the area of uh, cultural safety. Uh, and, you know, even in my time when I started in the 80s, but even 10 years ago, we couldn't talk about racism. And so I think one of the biggest um, uh, things, even when I was, uh, you know, chair of the Aboriginal Health Minister's um, uh, uh, Standing Committee under ARMAC or the Australian Health Minister's Council at the time, um, you know, racism was already part of the National Aboriginal Health Strategy, but yet we couldn't talk about it. We couldn't progress it as well as well as what we should be able to. It was visibly identified in that particular strategy back in 2013, but yet we could we we couldn't talk about it. And I remember doing um, uh, research around um, 
you know, if culture is part of a policy instrument like the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Plan, then how do policymakers implement culture? And uh, and what was prominent and arose from that was the fact that our culture will never be ever be implemented in healthcare or or service provision without first addressing the issue of racism and and cultural safety framework as the framework to address uh, racism in the healthcare system. We're talking about it a lot more than what we used to be able to, um, you know. And this is only. 10, 15 years ago now. I wanted to talk about how you're seeing racism affect health outcomes and why it's dangerous and poisonous mm. to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Racism makes us sick. Discrimination of all forms impacts on the health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We've seen it. We've felt it. But now we actually have the evidence to demonstrate that that is the case. And it's now time that health uh, policymakers and services need to actually do something about um, uh, discrimination or prejudice practices in the workplace or, or in, enshrined in services. Um, and so it, you know, again, it, racism makes people sick. And uh, there's enough evidence around to demonstrate that nowadays. And we we know the evidence is also telling us that um, uh, service providers are perpetrators of racism, whether that's in regards to overt or covert, but certainly um, how it plays out in those uh, unconscious biases that people actually hold and they unintentionally perpetuate uh, the violent nature of racism. They don't actually realise it. And uh, it's unintentional. Um, and unfortunately, it's normalised. It's actually normalised in the way that services are actually provided in, in Australia and in terms of towards Aboriginal people who might access those, those services. So um, the timing's right now to really, really tackle it, particularly as... The Australian, uh, well, the National Regulatory and Accreditation Scheme has now legislated mm. the need for cultural safety and the need to eliminate racism. So it's it, it's a big agenda for, you know, the Australian Health Practic Practitioner Regulatory Agency now to really think about, well, how do we do this and, and uh, what is required to do this and really put aside what you think needs to be done, but rather walk with us and, and address this, learn about what has to happen. One of the reasons we we talk about the voice, the Uluru Statement of the Heart and the Voice to Parliament is because we have no voice. And hence the reason it has to be enshrined in the Australian Constitution. We have no voice in institutions. You have representation but the dominance and the normalisation of how the white culture plays out in these institutions diminishes or often dismisses the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, uh, and so that is where the systemic racism starts to play out. Mm. And then inadvertently, you know, you end up with structural racism that are barriers to prevent that voice from actually coming through. And so there's a long way for us to go, but I mean, it's exciting moments.
I was hoping that we could talk about some kind of opportunities for change. So you're saying that the time is right. Um, and I wondered also whether you could talk about like specific examples or projects or research pieces that you have kind of in your future um, that listeners might be able to, I don't know, look out for or kind of think about how that might affect their experiences when accessing or giving um, healthcare services. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the critical pieces of work's research that's really occurring in Australia at the moment and is really having an impact around um, making uh, racism a visible public health issue is the MK study that the Australian National University um, and in particular Professor Ray Lovett is leading and I'm actually part of uh, that work in terms of the working group set up to look at racism and and so I think that piece of work is quite significant and in terms of um, influence policy because it's 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 new pieces of evidence that is Australian based and use it they can embed it into um, the work that they need to do around uh, influencing change particularly uh, within APRA for example and my own work in itself around uh, decolonizing public health policy and um, which is really about rightfully giving effect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge and cultures of ways of being, knowing and doing in public health policy is another piece piece of work that, that provides um, a system-wide translational model of practice, which is which is about changing system, but centers um centers the knowledge and cultures of um uh, of, of our ways of being, knowing and doing into public policy. And again, um, you know, that's the piece of work that the um Centre, uh, Learning Centre for Systemic Change and Research is actually building on um, in terms of uh, taking those findings and looking at um, how you can centre our knowledges and cultures when working with systems mm -hmm. and actually looking at those systemic and structural impediments that need to change and informing that and looking at um, the opportunities in the system where you can change. And um, I think that's, and, and the work that, that the Learning Centre for Systemic Change and Research will be doing, it will have research wrapped around it because we need to create um, the practice evidence yeah. around um, highlighting the significance of Indigenous system thinking, and which is essentially um, about changing systems mm -hmm. and how it actually uh, does uh, have the capacity and capability to change, to, to work with government and organisations to change um, practice, mm -hmm. to change thinking and to change services or policies and procedures that will break down and dismantle some of those violent racialized uh, barriers that, that perpetuate uh, racism unintentionally. Yeah. And so that's sort of um, the future work that where I want to go in terms of the work that I want to do with, particularly with community and other uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues uh, in regards to the foundation or the centre for the Le Learning Centre for Systemic Change and Research. Well, I look forward to hearing from you in the future. I'm sure you'll have made leaps and bounds in those areas and beyond. 
thank you, Carmen, for sharing just some of your stories and being a leader for change in our healthcare system, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, both patients and practitioners. Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity to um, share parts of my story. It was only one part. There's so much more to talk about. But, you know, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Taking Care. It's always a pleasure to have you and we'd love for you to explore our back catalogue as well. You can search for Taking Care wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've got questions or feedback, you can email us at communications at opera.gov.au. Take care.